thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Your family, your community, your country, your responsibility. Be the best citizen you can be. Click on the Leader Say banner on this website to find out about your rights and responsibility. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. Hello, Chris. Morning. Are you well today? Yeah, it's a bright sunny day. We're having a heat wave here, actually. Would you believe it? It yeah. is October almost. The trees are losing all their leaves because it is autumn. And you go to London, like I did yesterday, and it's 80 plus degrees, uh, you know, 25, 30 degrees C. Wow, that's unbelievable. Well, uh, John Robbie's uh, UK reporter, UK correspondent Adam Gilchrist, said yesterday that uh, it, it was so hot that uh, you guys didn't know what to do with the sunshine because you're not used to no, it anymore. <laughs> no, we didn't. It was, it was unbearable in London. And, the, you know, of course, people like me turning up to work early in the morning, you put your warm clothes on thinking, well, it's October almost. And then you have to sort of strip it all down again, which is ideal for a naked scientist, of course. But no, people were literally complaining that it was too hot. In the summer, they were complaining there was no summer. Now we're having a sort of deferred summer in October, and they're complaining because it's too hot for October. Enjoy it while it lasts. (laughs) No, there isn't any pleas. Well, I I asked you, Chris, how you're doing, and you said you were well. And I said, I'm thinking, is it because it's the morning? I hear most people are in a better mood in the morning. You're going to have to work very, very hard to convince me of that. Our first story about (laughs) moods worldwide revealed by twitter well i could say i'm just tweeting what i'm up to in fact i did i just tweeted uh, here we are live on talk radio 702 cape talk 567 um the the point about this story is that uh for a long time sociologists in other words people who study how humans interact with each other and how they build a world around them uh, they've been struggling to try to get a snapshot of not just one isolated group of people but how the whole world behave in in certain ways mm-hmm. there is an amazing paper it's been published in the journal science this week it's by two researchers at cornell they're scott gelder and michael macy and what they have done is to take half a billion twitter messages from the twitter microblogging site mm. which were posted by about two and a half million people over a two-year period and they fed those tweets into some language analytical software mm-hmm. which was looking for certain word combinations or phrases which could be used to indicate whether or not something was good or bad and from that they were able to effectively draw up a profile of at what time of day people tended to post positive things and at what time of day people tended to post negative things. In other words, when they were probably feeling more miserable. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting because it doesn't matter which of the 84 countries that they studied that you look at around the world, almost uniformly, everyone is in a better, more positive frame of mind in the morning. People really? are posting far more positive things early on. As the day goes on, the positive things decline, although there is a little sort of bedtime flurry of positive sentiment, which is nice. Mm -hmm. And as the day goes on, the negative affect increases. 
And so, in other words, the positive and negative vibes are not necessarily exclusive to each other. You can have a you can have a general population positive, but you can also have some negative blips in there, as you would expect. They're independent variables. Another interesting finding was that at weekends people are happier overall. They tend to post more positive things across the weekend, hmm. um, but at the weekend the positive things don't kick in until two hours. After uh, the average time that they start in a weekday, in, in, in other words, it's suggesting that people tend to have a lie-in. What it tells me is that people who use Twitter clearly haven't got any children, <laughs> because otherwise they wouldn't be getting up two hours later on a weekend. That's for sure. But the really intriguing thing I think here I is think they so, were also yeah. able to look at. Um, the phenomenon of seasonal affective disorder. In other words, the winter blues, because in some countries, especially at very high latitudes, uh, like Scotland, for instance, mm -hmm. day length becomes very, very short in winter. And it's associated with a higher rate of things like suicide and depression and people saying they feel generally more down during the winter. Now, is that because the day length is absolutely shorter or is it something more to do with the changing lengths of the days and how this impacts on your body clock? Because this mood-related phenomenon is a body clock phenomenon and using this amazing tool they were also able to look at that question because they were able to look at the relative length of the day and the relative changing length of the day at different times during the two-year calendar and then ask how did this impact on people's mood and they find there is no 100% relationship with length of day. It's not the amount of light you're exposed to. Instead, it's how your body clock is having to change to keep up with lengthening or shortening days that seems to affect mood. So when days are getting longer, people tend to make more positive comments. Mm. When days are getting shorter, they tend to make more or fewer positive comments. That was the interesting thing. The level of negativity stayed about the same. People are just less positive in winter time. Mm -hmm. I can tell you, Chris, I, I suspect that these guys should have asked, well, they should have asked me to contribute to the study because I bet you all those tweepers have had their uh, second cup of coffee by the time they post their first tweet. That's why they're in a good mood. You may be a participant because if you're a regular Twitter participant, then you might be within the random sample of the 2.4 million people that they included. The inclusion criteria were very general. You just mm. had to be a loyal Twitter user for a while, make a minimum of 25 and a maximum of 400 tweets that they analysed. So if you were tweeting around that time, anybody, you could be in that study without even realising it. <laughs> very interesting indeed. Let's go straight to the lines. David in Midran, hi. Hi there, morning. Morning. I just want to ask the naked scientists what is it in onion that makes your eyes tear? Hello, David. Um, this is really interesting, and in fact, we made a lovely video uh, sequence. It's on YouTube. If you want to look up Naked Science Scrapbook on YouTube, one of the episodes we published is called Why Do Onions Make You Cry? And it's a little yeah. graphical cartoon. It, it's very fun, but ba the bottom line is that when you have an onion... Then you cut the onion, you release from inside the onion tissue some enzymes called alinases, and these break down sulfur-containing chemicals inside the onion, and those sulfur-containing chemicals turn into other derivatives, which then get acted on by an enzyme called lacrimatory factor synthase, and this turns out a chemical called propanethial S-oxide and propanethial S-oxide is volatile, so it diffuses from the onion towards your eyes. It then sticks onto the front of your eye, and it irritates the sensory nerve endings on your cornea, which is the bit at the front of the eye, very, very sensitive tissue, and those nerves signal pain, and they also trigger... Uh, a tearing reflex. So the eye thinks there is something in it, a foreign body or a chemical irritation, and it triggers tearing in order to wash away the irritant, and that's why you then cry. But you'll notice there's a delay between cutting the onion 
and then your eye's starting to tear up because you mm. think, oh, I've got away with it. And this is because you're waiting for the enzymes in the onion, the alinases, to break down those um, sulfenic acids which are in the onion that are going to turn into the lacrimatory factor synthase substrate, which is the propanethialis oxide. And Chris, is there any truth to the fact that if you rinse the onion, it's not as bad? Because that's what I started doing. Like I'd chop it up and really rinse it. I convinced myself that uh, the onion juice, the stuff that makes my eyes cry, <laughs> would be out. And if but it's frozen, what? And if it's frozen, if, you, if, you're out, if the onion is frozen, if the, if the on, you cut on, it up, it doesn't oh, matter. Uh, what a brilliant suggestion, it's though. Great. You? I was going to say. The whole idea about because people say chop onions underwater, wear goggles, and all that kind of thing. But I think David, you, you've made a very important point there because this is a chemical process, and the rate of a chemical reaction is directly proportional to the temperature of the reaction um, rate. So, in other words, if you increase the temperature, you increase the rate of the reaction because the molecules which have to take part in the reaction are hitting each other more often, and they're hitting each other harder. Therefore, you're more likely to get a chemical reaction. Therefore, if you cool the onion right down, the chemical reaction will. Slow down and therefore you should see less of the production of the volatile agent and also things volatilize less well when they're cold therefore i would predict and i think mm. this is a great idea for an experiment david you should try this and phone us up and tell us what you find have a go with a frozen onion now there's your real challenge can you chop up a frozen onion i'm actually going to try that for the sun for sunday <laughs> lunch david thank you that's a great idea really is <laughs> okay temba in alberton hi hi how are you fine thanks Yes, uh, they, this uh, kind of a plant is called aloe vera. The name is Baba Dance Mila. So I want to find out what properties are there which are good for boosting the human si immune system. Hello, Timber. Uh, aloe vera, you're right, is well known and has been used for thousands of years medicinally as a sort of anti-inflammatory. It's a sort of succulenty plant and if you squeeze out the juice in the plant then there are chemicals that can be extracted and they have aspirin-like qualities. So in other words they have salicylic acid type behaviours and they damp down the immune response in whatever surface you put them onto and usually aloe vera preparations are rubbed onto the skin they're often used in things like sunburn as after sun and when the chemical diffuses through the skin it reduces the rate at which inflammatory chemicals are produced in the same way that aspirin does and it therefore makes sunburn better inflammatory conditions in the skin a bit better um so it's another example of an anti-inflammatory you can get from the plant world. I don't know why aloe vera make the chemicals, but it could be the same reason that um, many of these plants make lots of alkaloid chemicals because actually they're toxic to insect pests and it's a way of the plant defending itself and also protecting its own cells against um, inflammatory chemicals. What do you think uh, aloe vera toilet paper is for, Chris? Because you get some of that. Oh, I haven't had any of that. Maybe yeah, I we do some. have it in a supermarket. <laughs> but, but obviously um, you're not wiping your bum on an aloe vera plant, are you? Because that, they're quite spiky. <laughs> Take a break. <laughs> the Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. Let's go to Lutando in Bruma. Good morning to you, Lutando. Good morning, Reedy. Uh, I have a very serious problem. I crave, I chew eyes. When I see eyes, I just want to eat it. And this has been happening for a year already. I just want to know from the doctor what, what damage am I causing to my body? What caused it? And how can I stop it? Okay, ice cubes, you're obsessed with that. Okay. She chews them, <laughs> breaks them. 
Oh, I don't know. I think I quite like doing that kind of thing as well, though. So maybe, maybe I should watch it. No, I think probably we love putting things in our mouths. I mean, just look at babies. They put everything in their mouths. And the reason that they do that is because the part of your brain which decodes information coming from your lips and your tongue and the inside of your mouth is bigger than the rest of your brain's representation of your whole body put together. Because you have what's called a homunculus. Uh, this is the map of the body on the brain surface. And the head and face region, and the mouth especially, are absolutely huge in a disproportionately big area of that particular part of the brain. So in other words, you love exploring things with your mouth and tongue. And that's why we like kissing people for a start. Mm. But the... Yeah, quite. And I noticed really went, mm-mm. <laughs> uh, but the, but the, thing, the thing is... Therefore, it could be that it started off as a sort of a habit and you just love the texture and the, and the enjoyment of playing with the ice cube in your mouth and crunching the ice up and the sensations it produces. And I suspect that that is probably why. All right, enjoy. but it's not harmful to her, is it? Um... Well, ice is hard. And if you break your teeth on a hard piece of ice, then that would be harmful. But if you're just crunching small bits of ice, uh, I, I think there are far worse things that people put in their mouths, like cigarettes, for example, mm. which uh, would do you a lot more harm. So I think that ice, as long as it's clean ice, it's not got bugs in it or something, I think it sounds like a pretty harmless habit to me. Chris, tell me about this new way... If it goes with a gin and tonic or a martini, it's even better. Oh, now I'm very, very thirsty. And the weather is agreeable for that kind of drink. And tell it's 9.45 in the morning. Chris, <laughs> you didn't have to say that. I don't have a problem, okay? <laughs> okay, tell me about this new way to spot those at risk of uh, repeated heart attacks. Yes. Well, of course, most people are acquainted with the idea that you can do an ECG, an electrocardiogram, on someone who might have some heart symptoms. And the point about an ECG is that it gives you a snapshot in time of what the heart is doing electrically. It's the currents that you can record from the skin produced by the underlying heartbeat. But hidden in that heart tracing might be some other messages that we can extract to help us to make predictions about how people will fare in the future if they are close to having just had a heart attack. And there are some researchers at the University of Michigan. This is a gentleman who's called Zishan Saeed. Mm -hmm. And what he and his colleagues have done is they've got data from 4,500 people who've recently had some kind of heart problem. And they've got long-term ECG traces on them. And they've fed this into a computer and asked the computer to look for any corresponding features in the electrical tracings that they can match up with the clinical data from these people. In other words, they can say, right, this particular nature of the person's heartbeat always goes with this particular clinical outcome. And they've been able to extract three new what they call biomarkers. In other words, effectively three characteristic changes in the ECG mm -hmm. which can be used to make predictions about someone's risk in future. Just to put it briefly, they are, and their number one is MV or morphological variability. In other words, this is how the, cha the shape of the person's ECG changes over time. And that can be a giveaway that something might be changing or unstable in their heart. They've also got something they call a symbolic mismatch. So if you take the shape um, or the characteristic of the person's electrical ECG trace, and you compare it with a very big group of patients who have got a similar clinical history to that patient, then if they stand out from the crowd, that could be for a good or a bad reason and they can make predictions on that basis. And then they have something which is called the heart rate motif. Mm -hmm. And basically this is a measure of the frequency with which risky rhythms crop up in that person's heart rate and, and heartbeat characteristics. And so by putting all those three together, they're able to produce much more accurate risk 
profiling for people. So instead of someone comes in, they've had a heart problem, and you then give everyone the same interventions. With something like this added in to data that we're already collecting, because everyone has an ECG after all when they have a heart problem or they're getting um, tested for one, what they're saying is that if you applied these extra characteristic tests, you could stratify people much more effectively into those who are at high risk and therefore need more intensive follow-up, more intensive investigation or intervention, and those which are at lower risk and actually would not benefit from the extra spending that you would put into them just because at the moment we don't know that they're likely to be worse off or better off than the other group. So it's a nice way of using data we've already got and Mm -hmm. refining our predictions around it. All right, there we go. And Dave is calling us to respond to that ICE question. Dave in Linwood, you're a paramedic. Yes, yes. One of our signs and symptoms for an iron deficiency is people that eat a lot of ice. Really? Yes. So the previous caller could be suffering from an iron deficiency? It could be. I wonder why that is, Dave. I've I've never heard anyone eating ice when they're iron deficient. Why do you think they do that? Uh, To be honest, I don't really know. It's just one of our signs and symptoms. Mm. I mean, people who are iron deficient can get sore lips and mouth. Uh, You can get something called um, chelosis, sore lips, or angular stomatitis, sore sore edges to your mouth, and you can also get a sore tongue. Uh, So it might be that perhaps they're doing it in... in, What you're saying is there's an association with crunching ice because if they get sore mouth, it makes it feel slightly better. So it might be that it's a remedy for another sign or symptom they have in their mouth, I suppose. I'll have to look into that. I haven't heard an association between ice crunching and and, uh, iron deficient anemia, but it might be there, so we can have a look. Of course, and we also had Dr. Papi Maegiso phoning us saying that... uh, the previous caller should check her iron levels so it's not that you're getting the iron from the ice itself but that there's a relation in that it eases whatever it is that uh, you're suffering from yeah they may have they may have a bit of um stomatitis or something because of iron deficiency and that might be why they're doing it but on the other hand it could just be a habit that's pleasant Mm -hmm. all right chris please check it out for us we look forward to the answer thanks dave for calling and dr maiki so sfiso in brackpan good morning to you okay mukhesi if you can pick it up from your side thank you sfiso hi I'm fine, thanks. How are you guys doing? We're fine, thanks. Fine, thanks. I just wanted to ask a question, uh, quite simple, I think, for Chris. Um, I wanted to find ways of how to uh, how one can uh, sustainably and healthily uh, increase or manipulate one's metabolism. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a former sports person, but I'm, as growing up, I'm not as active as I used to be. I mean, going to the gym somehow manipulates my appetite, and I tend to eat more and I grow bigger, but then I know... As age goes on, I'll probably become bigger and bigger and bigger. Is there any ways of sustainably trying to... Uh, Boost your, meta- your metabolism, okay? <laughs> I suppose so. Um, it's a difficult question, isn't it? We all, as we get older, um, slow down a bit, and yet we don't slow down our eating habits. And as a result, there's more going in than going out. And so you tend to spread a little bit. Uh, the answer is that what determines your metabolic rate is the amount of lean tissue in the body the amount of muscle. And if you sustain the amount of muscle that you have, you will sustain your metabolic rate and therefore you will sustain your ability to burn calories. And the way you sustain lean tissue is by sustaining your level of exercise. So working out regularly, taking regular exercise, take the stairs, not the lift, for example, and this helps to prop up your muscle bulk and that should keep your metabolism up. There are other reasons why, for pathological reasons, people's metabolic rate can dwindle a bit. For instance, if they have a thyroid problem, if their thyroid starts to slow down too much, but this should not be uh, the case in someone who's an otherwise fit and healthy young man like you. Okay, Sfiso, enjoy. And uh, yeah, go to the gym and don't stay away from the beer, I see. (laughs) (laughs) No, don't stay away from the beer. Just do some extra press-ups to work it off. (laughs) You're a bad influence, Chris. Let's go to Balisa in Parkhurst. Hi there. 
Debbie. Hi, Chris. Uh, just have one quick question. You know, I do a whole lot of exercises, but when I do skipping and bunny hopping uh, or maybe steps, I find myself like kind of peeing myself all the time. Then in the end of the day, I'm just like, it's like I've peed the whole session. I can't do all of those sessions. So I wanted to check if it's really like scientifically or whatever, sporty related or whatever. So it's and when you're hopping and doing cardio and all of that, you pee on yourself. Just when okay. I'm hopping and I'm doing skipping and I'm doing steps, those okay. things. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, well done for talking about mm. uh, an, uh, what must be a very embarrassing problem for you, but also one which I think an enormous number of people are probably thinking, actually, I've got that. Can I ask you one simple question, which is, do you have any children? Yeah, I do have one child. Yeah, you see, children are terrible for women's pelvic health, unfortunately, because when you have babies, what they do is they stretch everything and they make what's called stress incontinence much more common. This is extremely common in women. It's extremely common in women who have had children. And it's because everything gets a little bit floppier because of everything getting a load on it from having babies. And as a result, the bladder neck, which has a sphincter muscle wrapped around it to keep it closed, tends to become a little bit slacker than it should do normally. So anything that increases intra-abdominal pressure that pressure is transferred onto the bladder and through the fluid and it squeezes a little bit of pee out through that sphincter it can't hold onto it tightly as it used to um, and if, if it's a really really bad and it's getting really really bad and it's getting worse it might be worth seeing a gynecologist who might be able to help you because there's a number of techniques that can be used in mm. order to try to tighten up the sphincter alternatively some pelvic floor yes. exercises can also help these so-called kegel exercises um, which uh, it's a bit like if you are peeing and you want to stop midstream mm. if you are able to stop midstream and you do that a few times the muscle that you are te tensing to do that that one needs strengthening so if you work out what muscle you have to contract to do that then anytime you've got five seconds on your hands just do it no one knows you're doing it but even actually, while you're, you're driving you're doing, or sitting you're, down you're doing the, yeah. a pelvic press up effectively in exactly while you're driving or anything and it helps to build up the muscle and it might help to reduce the um likelihood of it happening in future yeah but it's a very private thing that this kegel exercise nobody knows and sees that you do it can i also recommend pilates uh chris i mean i do a lot of that and i find that it does it does help and i, I hear from the instructors that it's meant to address those pelvic floor muscles as well well, anything which makes muscles work, I mean, anything that's do, you're doing exercise where you can also then work on those particular muscle groups down there at the same time, anything like that will help. Mm -hmm. All right. Good luck to you, Palisa. And thank you for raising this because I remember in our sexual health uh, program with Dr. Eve, we did speak about incontinence and a lot of women who had given birth naturally uh, were suffering from this. Let's go to Anne in Centurion. Hi. Hi guys, um, I've got a very, I've got very sensitive ears. I went to, I'll tell you quickly, I went to school, uh, the grandchildren's concert a little while ago, and it's happened three times within 10 years. Very sensitive ears. The last one I went to was about two weeks ago. I said to the family, listen, I've got to get out. It felt as though from my ears up until the top of my head, I couldn't get enough oxygen into my brain. And I said to my husband and all of them, listen, I've got to get out. And I came home, he brought me home, and I said to him, I don't know whether it's this noise or whether what it is. I know I've got very, very, very sensitive okay, ears. Okay, sorry, and we've run out of time. We really have. So you're saying you've got sensitive could ears it, and you want to know well, what causes it? Could it be that? anemic that, you know, I don't seem to get enough pressure into my brain, so to say. <laughs> Hi, Anne. It's really hard, you have to appreciate, for me to, as I can't see you, um, for me to 
pass any kind of judgment or offer you any kind of help, really. Um, it sounds like a rather strange symptom. I, I suspect it should be investigated, but I don't know uh, on the end of a line and not being able to see you what the answer is, I'm afraid. So if anyone has any suggestions, rather like the Ice Cube answer, then please let me know. Please let us know. Okay, thank you very much. Chris, time flies when you're having fun. We'll chat to you next week. It certainly does. Okay, thanks, Reed. You take care. Bye-bye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.